the thing that we have to realize is that Africa is a continent and it's a continent in which we have millions of languages. Even for us, African is immense. It's the biggest continent on the planet. And we have to be collaborative in the way we can help to find how to define a continent's music without leaving anyone behind. That is colossal work. So I don't like the term world music. That's why I campaign so much that it disappeared to global music because we are global citizens, Africans. We need to embrace that. Angelique Kijo is an unstoppable creative force. One of the greatest artists of our time, she earned the title of Africa's premier diva by Time magazine. With not one, not two, but 16 albums to her name, the five-time Grammy Award winner is world-renowned for her striking vocals and infectious energy on stage. Her genre-defying repertoire cross-pollinates West African musical traditions of her childhood in Benin with international influences from America, Europe and Latin America. And she's not just a musician. Angelique is also a fearless human rights activist who believes that education has the power to transform the lives of women and girls all over Africa. I'm Emma Searle and I spoke to Angelique Kijo on The Big Interview. Angelique, welcome to the program. I wanted to start by asking you about the Polar Music Prize, which you very recently won alongside Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records, and the Estonian composer Arvo Part, which is, and this is like one of the most prestigious honors in the industry. So I just wanted to begin by asking, what did winning the Polar Prize mean to you? Well, it means more responsibility, I guess. <laughs> I mean, um, I thought I was going to be 70 or 80 years old before I get considered for that prize. And here I am getting it. So for me, it means that the work needs to continue to be done. And um, that uh, when we are working, we're doing things that make sense for ourselves and for others. It does not go unnoticed. And it's humbling and it's challenging. But I'm, I'm happy to have that price also, but it adds more to my plate, which I'm going to try to to stand up for. I can imagine. What a what a humble response. And you you shared the award with Chris Blackwell, who I believe signed you uh, back in the, the early 1990s. How do you, how would yes. you describe the role that Chris has played in your career? I mean, I think Chris is somebody that has been, from the first 10 years of my career, being my uh, artistical director. It cannot get better than that. Knowing the extent of his work, producing all the Bob Marley stuff and uh, he discovered you too. He heard something in me. He sees something in me and he asked, and he's expressively said in the, on a fax, you better sign this young singer or you have no more job. <laughs> and I'm like, well, and then the thing that is really interesting with Chris is is his ear listening to music and giving freedom to artists that he signed to do the music they would love to carry and defend, which is was one of my asks when he decided to sign me was I wanted to be sure that I would keep my identity and I would do the music that I, I love and I want to do. And his answer then was, it's no brainer. Do it. Let's do it together. 
I want to go back and talk about your early life growing up in Benin. And you were, I believe, one of 10 children. I did want to ask, before the military regime took over, was this a happy time? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I was the whirlwind. I never stopped. When I was a kid, my mom was like, why can't you just stand still and talk to me? Why are you always running around the well in the middle of the house? And I'm like, yeah, but mom, I have to go see this. I have to do this. There's something always that I wanted to do. I was so curious and I would go everywhere, come back completely dirty. And my mom's there. I mean, <laughs> I have other things to do than taking care of you, washing you two or three times a day. But she would laugh and she said, you never stop. Where did you come from? I said, I said, and I would say, mom, you are my mother, right? <laughs> I was that kind of child. And the sense of safety, security, love and care that I took for granted until the communist regime arrived and all that just went through the window. It's something that allowed me to be the artist that I am today because I've been empowered to be the child that asks questions and have answers to it. And spending time with traditional musicians in my village, in the village of my father, and in the country at large, people were always interested to explain to me this or that. And it makes me really proud of my culture. I can imagine. And... How big a part was music for you in your childhood? And what were you what were you listening to at the time? I mean, it's a mixture of music. There were no day in my house without music. It's impossible. The house is never silent from music. We can talk, and then after talk, we listen to music. And my father would wake up in the morning and listen to news. That's the first thing I hear is the news around the world. And, and I just wake up to that with the music that goes with it. And my brother, they have a musical band at that time, and they wanted to have instruments. So my father took a loan and bought all the instruments. And as a child, I was just mesmerized and really curious about how one person can play the drum set. And it really increased my attention to the way I listened to the music that was available at that time, because it was music from America, from Europe, from Africa, from Asia. There's not one music that exists on this planet that didn't make it to the turntable home and that my brother will cover as a band. And I would be listening. Sometimes I would sing the songs phonetically because I, I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't speak English. All of those languages that come home, even the language from South Africa. But I just make up my own words and I just sing them. <laughs> you knew that you wanted to become a singer at quite a young age and you performed as a young girl in the 60s, but it was also a difficult time and you've spoken before about the abuse that you faced. And so I was just wondering, what what can you tell us about that and how did you overcome it? But the thing about music is as soon as I was start singing very young, for me it was fun. Somehow I loved it, but what I was going to do with it, I didn't know then. And a lot of things happened between me living in 1983 is my, my discovery of the existence of slavery and apartheid in South Africa. Because it doesn't fit into the discussion that we have home. Our home was a platform for discussion. My father opened the house. My father and my mother, they opened the house for every single human being on this planet that are willing to discuss about a constructive world in which we're going to live in. Because my father's philosophy and my father's thought is the world as we know it today, when we're sitting here at this table, is not going to be the same in 10 years from now. So how do we prepare for the change that's going to occur from now on 
till we reach those 10 years. And decade after decade, year after year, the world is, is in, in perpetual changing and how human beings can adopt and adapt those changes to our life and still be happy and still be productive and still being citizen proud of being a human being. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't fit very well into the narrative of slavery and apartheid. And that was the defining moment for me where I said to my, my mom and dad, or I become a human rights lawyer or I become a surgeon. Don't ask me why, because I like to help people. I've always done that. <laughs> my mom called me Mother Teresa because I like to help people. And, and then on top of that, you have dictatorship that comes home and then you have to deal with it. And you realize that the freedom of speech that we have and you and I talking freely today is something that we have to prepare. I mean, we have to protect because it's really fragile. Everything around us is to crush that freedom of speech and let people do with us what they want to do with our life, to have the say if we have the choice to live freely or not. And that conscience of free speech for me comes deeply home. When you wake up and somebody comes to your home, you don't trust that person anymore because you don't know if the person is fine for the government in place. Your home that was a home of security and safety becomes a jail that had been built by a political system that gave you no choice but being silent. And then you move to France, where France is presented as the birthplace of human rights, of freedom, of civilization, and all those kind of stuff. And you, you are met with pure ignorance about Africa because it's a narrative that are told by all those rich nations to forget all the crime they've committed on the continent. So it comes home to me. Then I realize that being Black can be dangerous in some places. But that makes me more eager to go through my music to create bridges between culture for people to realize that you cannot have a life and be happy if people at large are not happy. Is that the kind of attitude that just infectious optimism that you have and you can see it so clearly in your performances? Is that how you got through? It must have been a difficult transition because, as you say, you left Benin in the 1980s because of the communist dictatorship takeover and you moved to Paris that's got to be a tough transition. So what was that like to adapt? There were days of crying, not crying for my misery, but crying to see the ignorance of people, how it hurts, how it hurts them and how it hurts me. And you have to just think for yourself for one minute. Are you going to be the victim or are you going to be a player in the change of this world? So I've never been a victim. My mom and dad have always said, there's never going to be guilt in this house. Guilt is absolutely a plague. My mom and dad said, there's no place for pity here. (laughs) Move on. Something wrong happened, apologize and move on. And that, I arrived in France with all that philosophy and all that positive way of dealing with your problem. So I said to myself, well, I will educate people through music. For example... When I arrived, the first musical school I was, I was being trained classically. I was listening to the classical music. And I remember one day the teacher, the vocal teacher said, I want to play you a classical piece that can be sung that is unique in the classical world is the Ravel Bolero. I'm like, okay. So we start listening to it and I start beating. 
tapping with the beat. And one student said to me, you don't do that with classical music. This is classical music. It's not your savage African music. And I said to him, I am so sorry, but this is African. It's an African mode. It's repetitive. That's what we do. It's not your classical music. Your classical music is taken from us. Another time I was listening to the talking heads. singing and tapping on it and I say, this is rock and roll, South African music. All the time telling people, you don't have any music without Africa, let me tell you. You believe it, you don't know it, you better do your researches. Because those rhythms you're talking about, rock and roll doesn't exist without the blues. And the blues have been brought by the slave descendant in America. So it's all the time. And at one point I said to myself, well, instead of talking, do it. That's why I covered the Ravel Bolero and put lyrics on it. And that's why I covered the whole album of The Talking Heads, Remaining Light. Absolutely. Um, and I did want to ask you particularly about Talking Heads, because I believe it was in Paris when you first heard their song, Once in a Lifetime, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But just when you heard it, you know, and then that later led you to create the album Remain in Light, you know, talk to us about that process and, and where that came from. When I, I listened to that, it was what I was telling to you earlier when the guy told me, this is the rock and roll, you can't be, you can't be dancing on it. I'm like, yeah, well, right. I mean, you stupid. I'm sorry for your stupidity, but that's, that's not, I have nothing to do with what I'm feeling. And then I, from my first album, when I started touring in the uh, early 90s, I remember doing a concert at a club called SOB, Sound of Brazil. And the PR from the record company stormed to my dressing room completely excited, screaming off her head. Angelique, Angelique, there's a superstar, American superstar coming. I mean, she scared me so much and my reaction was, and then what? He's a human being, right? <laughs> she looked at me, she said, you're weird. And it happens to be that it was David Byrne. And the conversation we had, I will never forget it. He was so knowledgeable about the music of Western Africa. I'm like, where do you come from? And I run when I said, are you sure you're American? He said, yes. I'm like, well, something is wrong with you. But I'm happy to have this conversation with you. To make a long story short, I moved to America in 1997. And I started doing the concert of Philip Glass for the freedom of the Tibet House, the Tibet. So it's called Tibet House Concert at Carnegie Hall. So I've met David Byrne. I know the talking heads. But because the first time I heard that song, there were no cover album. I did not link Once in a Lifetime to David Byrne or the talking heads. It's just Accidentally, I was talking about the melody that was inspired. I was singing the chorus of Once in a Lifetime because it's inspiring me. And I was like, I want to do something. I want to make an album with that kind of thing. And the people say, what? (laughs) That is the iconic album of the talking head, David Byrne. My management, my husband, a friend of mine that is a concert agent said, Angelique, forget it. The lyrics mean nothing. It's absurd. And you... You always have a message. You're always telling the story in your song. I'm like, please, play me that damn album from the beginning till the end. They all look at me like, you're crazy. I say, just play, please.
And from the first song on that album, it brings me to back home. And I'm like, you guys think that the lyrics are absurd? Me, I grew up with elderly people throwing proverbs at me when I had asked them questions they don't want to answer, but they want me to find the answer through the proverbs. So that's when I said, okay, I just finished an album where I've been traveling and singing with women. There's so much wisdom in all those words. I said, what I feel, I'll put wisdom and those women's voice in parallel to the song of the talking heads. And like a book, you have the first page and the second page, and they're going to answer each other. That's how I start doing the album, uh, Many Life. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? I mean... Yeah, when I'm, when I'm listening to you speak about your work, and you're absolutely right, you know, in saying that the music of the world comes from Africa. And it's a fact that, I don't know, for some reason throughout history, it's sometimes been ignored or brushed under the carpet. And so, you know, I do just wonder, you know, how do you feel feel when your music is defined as so-called world music, you know, in the world music category at the Grammys? You know, do you, do you think we need to reframe the way that we think about music and genres? The thing that we have to realize is that Africa is a continent and it's a continent in which we have millions of languages. Even for us, African is immense. It's the biggest continent on the planet. And we have to be collaborative in the way we can help to find how to define a continent's music without leaving anyone behind. That is colossal work. So I don't like the term world music. That's why I campaign so much that it disappear to global music because we are global citizens, Africans. We need to embrace that before anything. We are African, but we live on a global scale. We have to accept that we have a role to play in many different ways and do this perfectly. Now, the challenge I have been facing throughout the year in what is called global or world music, is that people don't know what it is to be in Africa. That is the challenge we have. And in the music also, that's what it is. Are we African proud of what we have? Are we proud of the fact that our music has traveled to every corner on this planet, sometimes with the painful story of slavery? And why do we let people that enslave us tell our story? We need to tell our own story and we need to do it in a way that is unapologetic. It has to be crystal clear what we're talking about and debunk all those cliches and all those stories that people that profited from slavery. Where is our pride when we stand? What do we have to say? Because the narrative of the one that enslavers is profiting them today. Let's turn that narrative around. We need to have a balanced conversation. It's going to be in pointing finger at each other. Let's make researches and find out where do we come to a common ground and then we can settle something that works for everybody. No, absolutely. And I love that your music in particular is so, it's so unifying because it's that it's so global and you cross-pollinate 
Western African music with jazz, R&B, even like Latin American music. And I particularly love how your collaboration with the Luxembourg Philharmonic Orchestra sings, for which you won you won a Grammy Award for that. And I loved that project. And I, I did want to ask about that. You know, you are not afraid to fuse your music with classical music. How did that come about? And Is that how you feel? Well, at the beginning, many different things happened. I've been, first of all, I was doing a conference at APAP. APAP is the conference that brings all the performing arts center of the world in New York to see which artists are new, who are there, then they can do their programming. And I was the artist that closed the conference. So at that time, it was the album Black Avery Soul, I think. Then my guitar player came rushing to me and said, Angelique, there is a guy from the London Philharmonie that wants to talk to you. I said, me? I said, okay. Then I turned around. And it was the musical director of the London Philharmonie, Mr. Timothy Walker. And then he come to me and said, excuse me, man, but I don't know you. I don't know your voice, but I heard you. Have you ever, with that voice, thought of singing with classical orchestra? I look at them like, is he on some drug or something? What are you talking about? And I said, no, I never thought about it. And then he said, I can see you singing personal and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. So we met, we met Bill Riley, my vocal coach. And then time passed. And then meanwhile, I was doing a concert in Montreal Jazz Festival in Switzerland. And a guy came in, wanted to meet me. And he comes from the Luxembourg Philharmonie, Gaspersen. He came and said, I hear your music with classical arrangement. Then he sent me some arrangement. And my husband and I, we sit down here and say, okay, let's do this. So the first show we did was in 2012, and I was so insecure in that setting that I said, I'm going to have my musician with me. So <laughs> I brought my musician, and then I was frustrated. I'm like, ah, I didn't hear the instrument. And then we did it again. I said, no, this time around, I understand what is needed for me to be with a classical orchestra. I need to become an instrument with my voice within the classical orchestra because they are not mic'd. Because if I don't hear the string and all those stuff, I can't sing because I don't read music and I memorize everything, like the whole orchestra in my head. So that's how we start preparing things. And meanwhile, came back to New York. And Timothy Walker from the London Philharmonic came to present the symphony, the London Symphony at, at Lincoln Center. And he came after, he said, I've been thinking, Angelique, I think that we need someone like Philip Glass to write a piece of symphony for you. So I called Philip and we started this conversation and Philip said, what do you need from me? And uh, Timothy explained to him his idea and Philip said, of course, Angelique, you choose the topic, you give me a series of free poems, and I'll write a symphony for you. So I came back here and said, what do I want the piece to be? What in my culture needs and deserves to have a classical piece written? Mm. So I chose the mythology of the creation of the world according to the Yoruba myth. Then I gave him the free poem. 
I translated in French and in English, and then I recited in my language, telling him their accent, because the same word can mean so many things. So it has to be precise. A year passed, and then one day he said, here it is, piano voice, and the melody that I wrote on it. And I was just like flabbergasted. He transcribed the Yoruba language in music. So that's when I did my first collaboration with Philip Glass on Ife, the three Yoruba song. And then the second thing that we did together, Philip was asked by the Los Angeles Philharmonic that they were celebrating their 100-year anniversary, and they asked him to complete the trilogy of album from David Bowie in Berlin. I feel wrapped up, feel a bit frightened, nearly pin it down sometimes. Sometimes he has done the number one and number two. They say, What will you do that? So he said, Yes. So he said, I will do it at the condition if Angelique is the soloist. So that's how I did the 12th symphony of Philip Glass with the orchestra. So that's my journey with the classical world. Well, let's talk a bit now about your advocacy work, because you're not just a musician, you're also an activist. You're a, a force driving changes for, you know, for generations to come. And you've traveled the world on behalf of Oxfam and UNICEF. And you created your own foundation, Batonga, which is named after one of your hit songs. Um, so tell us about Batonga and why this work is so important to you. I grew up with... Um my grandmothers, and I've seen my parents. My father would went one paycheck, sent 10 kids to school in a bowl. Cousins, family members that come, don't have the money to go to school. My father will find the money to send them to school because my mom and dad, both of them educated. They understood the importance of being educated. And my father and mother say, it's the best investment ever that you can give anyone. Instead of giving money, send them to school to know how to make the money that they're going to live with last forever. And I grew up seeing, feeling privileged because my parents protected me from harm tradition. That couldn't do any harm to me. My father would stand against anything that will touch us physically or mentally. And I'm just a legacy of their belief in equal chances to everybody, give people the chance to be themselves. So when I was nominated to be UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador in 2002, my first question was, what does that entail? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Because if it's for me to go around and shaking politicians' hands, you won't have me because I'm not good at it, really. And they said, no, what do you want to do? I say children's right, women's right, and above. Let's go for it. So we started it. And I've seen firsthand that when you work respecting other people that you are helping, you're not helping them actually, they're helping you. And in that endeavor, 
mothers have come to me and said, we've listened and seen your PSAs on radio and TVs and we have sent our girls to school because it was the Millennium Development Goal at that time. We waited so long to write into law that primary education is a universal right. And some mother comes to me and said, you know very well that if our girls finish primary school and they are not in secondary school, their father gonna think that they've done their job and they're gonna get married and the cycle of poverty gonna continue. The faith us mother had, we don't want the same faith for our kids. So when I started Batonga, it was, okay, how do I make this work? And a lot of people around me were telling me, Angelique, don't get, don't embark on that. You're never gonna succeed. I said, what are you talking about? And they said to me, all the studies have proven that girls drop out of school when they're in secondary school because of early marriage, pregnancy, or not being able to follow, or this and that. And I said to them, if it's easy, why bother? You telling me we can't do anything about it? Let me give it a try. But I needed somebody to help me to build this foundation from ground up. So I've been presented to two lawyers out of Washington, D.C. that had a law firm in which they revival, they revive the law, the, the whistleblowing law. And every time they win, they will win a trial. They will put part of it in a fund that they call Opportunity Fund. And they were already doing some little program here and there in Africa. And then when we met, they asked me, Angelique, what do you need from us? I said, I need you to help me bring my foundation to life. And they said, what is your vision? And I said, my vision is to go to the villages where no one wanna go. I wanna walk the dirt road, not the paved road. I wanna go to where people are poor that they can't even buy a book. And I want to send them to school by providing tuition, the uniform, the books, the tutoring, the mentoring in one minute a day. They say, okay, let's go for it. And I said to myself, I want the local NGO that are working with the girl that I'm looking for to be part of this. I'm not in the countries. I don't know what's gonna happen. I need the mentors to be local for the parents to believe, to have trust, to know where to go. Me, I leave for when I come is just to ask what is needed and then I can go and find the money and build the program around their needs. So that's how we started in 2006 in Benin, Mali, Cameroon, Ethiopia, and Sierra Leone, where we built a school in Waterloo, the second city in Sierra Leone after the conflict was over. So to make a long story short, 2016 arrived, and I said 10 years has passed. Most of my girls are gone in university. Some, I don't know where they are, but I wanted to find out who dropped out and the reason why. I know that my girl in Mali, after the first year, because of the terrorists being in Kidab, they just went up uh, from the, under the radar. And it was, it pained me a lot. Even talking about it is still difficult for me. So in 2016, what do we do? I reached out to a foundation that's called Population Council that had a technology that's called Girl Roster that they, they put together for Guatemala for the same issue that we're facing in Africa. And they said, we can help you. So I decided, instead of making a big deal about it, I wanted to stay in two villages in my country. So in Benin in two villages, Boiko and Savalu, we were able to map a community of 5,000 people a day. And with the result, we were able to create a curriculum that functioned for the girls' needs. 
And what come out is that they need safe space where they can they can emulate each other. And the reason why they drop out are many. Some of them become orphans and they no more support. Some of them pregnant. Some of them, the primary education was so bad that they cannot level up with the other kids. And there's so much pushback you can have. And they just get discouraged and they lay. And I say, okay, now, what skill do you have? How far have you been to school? What can we do together? And we start the girls club that today is absolutely amazing because what we do, we give them seed funding. We help them build the business. We change the age of the mentoring. And I can tell you today, every time I go and I speak to those girls, they blow my mind away. When the pandemic arrived, they were on it. They create the mask, they make soap, they took up the local radio, day in and day out telling people in their community, this is what you do, this is where the water are, this is where the soap are, don't touch your face, the masks are here for free. I mean, those young girls, they can articulate what they need and they provide and they do it. That must be amazing to, to watch young girls completely transform their lives. It must be very rewarding. But just finally, Angelique, you know, it just seems like your amazing advocacy work, it very much seeps into your music and they seem to be very much interlinked. What do you consider to be the main aim of your music making? My main aim is for people to see the power of all of us together working for the same purpose. We need to realize that division has hurt us beyond word and it's continued hurting us in many different ways. Wherever I go, Parents are the same. They want their kids to be healthy, to have three meal a day, to have a good education, and then they can put money aside for the extra they can have. I'm not a dreamer. I know it's possible. We just got to get to work and do it. Angelique Kidjo, thank you very much for joining me here on The Big Interview on Monocle Radio. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was edited by Jack Dewars and Tamsin Howard. From me, Emma Searle, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>